welcome to Healthcare Du Jour, where we dish up and digest the latest in healthcare. For the next 30 minutes, sit back as we bring you insight, commentary, and discussion on trending topics to the table, all expertly served up by our host and his guests. Healthcare Du Jour is brought to you by Carium, the telehealth platform enabling healthcare's digital transformation, helping you care for people within the fabric of their daily lives. Now here's your host, Matt Fisher. Welcome back, and thank you for joining as we dive into the hottest topics in healthcare. I'm your host, Matt Fisher. On the menu today is Daniel Etra, co-founder and CEO at Rethink First. Daniel, welcome to the show. Thank you, Matt. It's a pleasure to be here. So, Daniel, what I always like to do before getting into the main part of the conversation is to give my guests a chance to provide more of an introduction in terms of who they are and what they do. So, Daniel, the floor is yours. Terrific. So, I run a behavioral health technology company, one of the leaders in the space, and really what we try to do is support all entities that revolve around care, the care of high needs populations, such as those with a developmental disability, autism being one, and recognizing the significant shortage of trained clinicians available in the market to uh, uh, deliver intervention to these high needs populations. We take a technology driven approach, giving those entities, whether it's a school system, a major employer, a behavioral health provider, or a health plan, the tools to manage treatment, leverage best practice intervention, train that frontline worker who'll be working with these individuals, track progress in an accurate manner, and overall really bring a disease management approach and best practice approach to serving this population at scale. So before kind of pulling a lot of those concepts apart, I'm interested to know kind of what first got you into healthcare. Sure. So uh, I'll say I, I'm a reformed investment banker. I used to work uh, in the healthcare space uh, pretty extensively, but what really attracted me to the space that we're currently in was, and this goes back to 2006, 2007, hearing from friends, colleagues who were having their dependents diagnosed at the time with an autism spectrum disorder. And this is before a lot of the awareness that you have today. You know, once it appear, appears on Oprah, I think everyone, you know, in a common way understands what these conditions are. But back in 2006, 2007, very few people actually did. And speaking to uh, to my friends, uh, colleagues who uh, who had their dependents on this uh, diagnosis on the spectrum, um, we hear how hard it was for them to find services, let alone be able to uh, to pay for it. And and I love the fact that. We are a mission-oriented company or a double bottom line company, uh, as it's known. Uh, and we actually set out to make a difference in uh, in the world, solving for a problem that uh, existed that was very clear, but it didn't have immediate solutions. And, and so that combination of building a sustainable enterprise while also impacting a population uh, in significant need of, of help and, and clinical intervention uh, was was powerful and compelling. And I think it's one of the things that's allowed us to be successful. And everyone uh, on our team, we have over 400 individuals uh, at Rethink, I think are all driven by that same motivation uh, and ambition to have an impact uh, on this population, as well as on their caregivers. So you're talking about trying to help, uh, I think as you framed it, a high needs population or high needs populations. And you said that the focus for you is on behavioral health technology kind of what does behavioral health technology look like and how does it differ from technology that might be focused more on uh, the physical side of health? Sure, that, that's a great question. Uh, I think when you think of the physical side of health, 
Uh, typically, whether it's a condition like cancer, or diabetes, or, or cardiac disease, the medical community knows quite well, you know, what is the appropriate diagnosis, what is the intervention or treatment protocol, and what the likely outcome looks like. And, you know, you can go to your GP, you can go to your gastroenterologist, uh, they're clear intervention protocols, and you know where to uh, secure them. When it comes to behavioral health, I know behavioral health is quite broad. Our focus are on uh, these high needs populations. Oftentimes, it's not immediately clear what is the diagnosis or what is the patient need. And even uh, within the clinical and academic community, as the expression goes, you've seen one child with autism, you've seen one child with autism. And so everything from uh, wait times that can be up to 18 months to get in to see a developmental pediatrician. If you're the caregiver, what do you do uh, in the interim to once you potentially have a diagnosis, you may be waiting another 18 months to get access to a, a clinical resource, a behavioral therapist that can come work with your dependent. Again, what do you do in the interim? And so it's providing the tools, the strategies, and a clinical support system to that caregiver to be able to work with the, the individual immediately, irrespective of um, what resources are available in their community. And the nice thing is it, it impacts all entities that revolve around their care. So for example, in the school system, uh, we have a client, uh, a large district in Virginia that has about roughly 500 students with an autism diagnosis and one behavioral therapist available, that expert clinician that knows how to create intervention plans for uh, these individuals. And so how does that one individual uh, actively and, and adequately deliver treatment uh, to this student population? In a similar vein, we, we work with large corporations that have employee caregivers of uh, dependents with uh, autism, for example, or other developmental disability. And as I noted before, they may be waiting a long time to get access to, uh, to services. How do you support that caregiver uh, in real time so that they're not bringing these stresses and challenges into the workplace? And in a similar vein, even on the clinical side, these clinical agencies that employ behavioral therapists delivering intervention uh, in a center-based setting or, or in a home-based setting, how do you help them ensure that in the multiple geographies where they deliver services, their standardization of care. Um, if they want to serve additional patients, how can they do that with a, a limited pool of trained clinicians? And so it's bringing resources to bear across all these end modalities, wherever the patient is located, and using technology to automate a lot of the administration work that would typically be, that is typically required, whether training staff, writing the intervention plan, tracking progress. Um, the only way you can support these populations at scale is by bringing technology to bear. And I, I want to be very clear, we're never meant to replace that expert clinician, that board-certified behavior analyst, the BCBA. That's not what we do. What we do is allow that individual to reach more patients. It allows us to support the caregiver when that a clinician is not in the home or or in the school or in the workplace. So in that in that development, and you covered a, a very wide variety of potential settings and use cases. And you know, kind of as you started off by talking about it, it's you know, every interaction or intervention is going to be unique to that specific patient. So kind of given all those experiences, 
you know, what have you found to be kind of the common core components that make the technology, you know, effective or more or driving better interactions and kind of, as you said, helping to enhance the capabilities of the clinician that's using it? Sure. That's a great question. I think there are two, two components to that answer. The first one is ensuring clinical fidelity. So the beauty of our platform, we automate a lot of the workflows, so the tasks that go into treatment, but we also have a massive digital content library that shows whoever that caregiver is, whether it's a, a mainstream educator, a parent in the home, a junior clinician working with a, a patient, how to deliver the intervention in a clinical best practice manner. And, and that's that's the key element here. It's putting these tools and a, an evidence-based clinical best practice approach at the fingertips of the caregiver. And, and I, I'm not going to pretend or assume that uh, every individual is going to deliver that intervention exactly like a trained clinician, but that's not the idea. The idea is to have these tools available so that if you don't have access to that trained clinician, or maybe a time period, another week or two till that clinician can come work with uh, the individual, whoever is caring for that individual, again, in the school, in the home, in the healthcare system, they know what to do and can deliver that care in a uh, in a best practice manner. And, that, and that's sort of the part one. The part two, and, and this is where I get super excited about what we do, through our work uh, since we've been around in 2008, we sit on the largest data set of clinical outcomes for patients with an autism diagnosis. And to give you a sense of scale, over 250 million clinical outcome data points, uh, published uh, data points. And what we're doing is leveraging AI uh, to be able to group these patients into one of 48 clusters. And based on this cluster and, and certain characteristics, we can predict with close to a 99% accuracy what that outcome trajectory should look like. And this is the game changer for the healthcare system because the, the conditions I, I noted earlier, cancer, diabetes, cardiac disease, um, you know within a very narrow band what's the appropriate treatment approach and what the likely outcome is going to be. Uh, when it comes to behavioral health and certainly autism as an example, that doesn't exist because the data historically has not existed. And so having this data set where we can start to establish what is the appropriate treatment plan for this patient and what should that outcome trajectory look like, then you can start bringing a, a true disease management approach. And by disease management, I really emphasize it's not about controlling costs, but about establishing what is the appropriate treatment plan? Is the provider delivering against that treatment plan? Is the patient making the kind of progress that he or she should? And so it's that automation of, of tasks, uh, ensuring that the intervention is delivered in a, cl in a clinical best practice manner with that knowledge of what should the treatment outcome look like by combining those two. That's how you, again, really drive the kinds of outcomes that want, what, that are you know game-changing for the industry and certainly for this population that had not been done before. And kind of given that data set that you were just talking about, what are the key elements that you're looking to collect that help to inform that analysis and 
what additional data might you, or elements might you be looking for to kind of further refine and grow the impact of um, the analysis that you're developing? Absolutely, great question. So if you think about some of the standard diseases, which I, I'll note again, um, uh, whether it's cancer, for example, you look at degree of metastasization, and then based on that, what's the right treatment and what's the likely uh, outcome. When it comes to delivering behavioral intervention, um, it's a lot more complex because it's not just again an individual the individual diagnosis. It's what is the what is that the dependent's current developmental level? Where are the skill deficiencies? Uh, uh, is it social emotional learning? Is it expressive language? Is it receptive language? Are there problem behaviors? Are there issues with motor skills? Um, and so it's looking at the patient understanding where are all the various uh, skill deficiencies and developing the right intervention plan for that individual so that they can progress uh, towards the appropriate outcome. And I'll note that not every outcome, not every individual, even with the right level of behavioral therapy, is going to achieve uh, a mainstream level of functionality. Um, you may have individuals that can. You may have other individuals that only can progress to a certain point, and then it becomes, you know, a, a more limited development process. And so, the kind of data we're uh, we're capturing that allows us to pinpoint for the individual down to the appropriate skill area what should be worked on, how long it should be worked on until you get diminishing returns. And knowing that what that likely uh, you know, endpoint looks like, that allows one to work backwards, uh, establish the appropriate treatment plan, uh, and, and also know at one point when to titrate care because additional improvement is not going to occur. And, and so it's having that breadth of the data, having visibility uh, down to the specific skill area that allows us as a company to be more effective in terms of recommending the appropriate intervention plan and also working with all those stakeholders, uh, the education system, major employers, behavioral health providers, and of course, health plans themselves to uh, ensure that for each patient, he or she is, re is receiving the right, the appropriate intervention plan combined with the appropriate treatment. Yeah, that's bringing you know so many different sides of the puzzle together, or pieces of the puzzle together. Um, and for those of you just joining, I'm talking about Daniel Etra of Rethink First, and we've been talking about behavioral health technology and the impact of being able to gather a lot more information to inform you know how care is being delivered or pursued. Um, and Daniel, as we're just talking about kind of that complexity and you know gathering different data set or data elements and recognizing kind of all the different components that apply in a behavioral health and with the autism uh, treatment as the specific example, how have you seen kind of an evolution maybe of use of the technology or interaction with the technology from the pre-pandemic pre period to now as we're, I guess, you know, as we're recording in May of 23, theoretically exiting um, the pandemic period? Sure, absolutely. Uh, that's a that's a great question. I think a few general trends. Uh, I, I think number one, the awareness uh, of these conditions, and in tandem, the awareness of the strains put on caregivers uh, of these individuals. And so, it, it's not enough to take the traditional historical approach where 
you're uh, pursuing direct-to-patient treatment, you also need to provide active supports to the caregiver. And supports, I mean, giving them the tools, the strategies, and training to know what to do with their uh, dependent or or uh, student uh, or employee so that they can perform uh, at their best and be able to reinforce whatever direct treatment uh, the patient is receiving. Um, and so there's the awareness of the, the importance of supporting the caregiver that's built. I think there's the, also the awareness of the general mental health of uh, these caregivers. Uh, I remember uh, today we work with about a third of the Fortune 100. I remember pre-COVID uh, and certainly the years leading up to COVID, a lot of what we would need to do is educate uh, the global head of benefits or head of HR how these employee caregivers are struggling and, and essentially the cost of doing nothing. And coming out of COVID with the uh, the overall awareness of the importance of supporting employee mental health, I think now there's that understanding that, yes, you need to support not just the, all employees, but certainly uh, these employee caregivers of high needs populations. It's not enough to just say we're covering uh, medical intervention or behavioral intervention on the clinical side direct uh, to patient. Um, there's also the awareness, I think, on the part of uh, the healthcare system that this is a population, a problem that's only growing. Uh, and it's a high cost problem as well. And so, you know, to use the analogy, it's it's a little bit historically, it's a little bit, a little bit of, of the Wild West where uh, you didn't have data driven uh, intervention plans, per se. You didn't have data driven ways to establish, you know, what those outcome trajectories should look like. You didn't have data driven ways of assessing provider performance. Um, and also, I, I want to emphasize, too, it's not just sort of the health plan looking at the provider. It's also the provider themselves. They ultimately want to do a good job. You know, they want to be viewed favorably within the healthcare system. They exist to serve uh, this population. So it's starting to bring um, the data to bear to start make, to making informed clinical decisions um, because historically that data hasn't existed and so I think it's it's a higher awareness and a willingness to bring a more a greater level of sophistication, uh, not just willingness, but the ability to bring a greater uh, level of sophistication to the delivery of intervention because you start to make data-driven decisions. I think, as you said, with the, with that enhanced awareness coming on both the importance of you know recognizing and helping to address mental health issues along with being able to better understand how the interventions that have been used are making an impact. And then, you know, it seems like it's fair to say using that to change course as need be. How have you seen like the willingness to use technology or deploy technology in that regard evolve? Like, you know, for example, is it, you know, and I think you've already been implicitly answering to some degree, but it, you know, but is it easier to get people to say, yes, I understand what this, what this technology is capable of now, and how is that driving kind of further development? Uh, absolutely. So th there's no question, sir. There's there's the rising tide of awareness within the marketplace. Um, when we began our, our our discussion, our conversation, I noted just uh, this the problem we set out to solve in terms of dearth of clinical resources uh, in the marketplace, and that continues today because these populations are rapidly expanding. I think mental health today is a, a well-recognized problem globally and certainly among all individuals, not just those who are 
employee caregivers. So that already sort of moves the needle in terms of the willingness of these entities, whether school systems, employers, health healthcare systems to take action. Um, so that's sort of like the uh, the minimum baseline in in terms of um, you know the uh, the improvement in the space. And, and then the recognition that you have that limited pool of clinical resources that are available. So the only way you're going to effectively scale is by deploying technology. Um, and and I'll always note, as I said earlier, it's not it's not meant to replace the clinician, but it's meant to give that clinician the tools to be more efficient, effective, and operate at scale. So whether you're a, a large public school district like New York City, for example, uh, how do you serve a population uh, of students with autism that number eight thousand? Uh, with uh, limited resources uh, in your district, you have to use technology to equip the frontline worker, whether it's the paraprofessional, the mainstream educator that may have that student in their classroom. In a similar vein for global uh, U.S.-based multinationals, how do you support an employee that may be based, uh, you know, in China, in Asia, or in Europe uh, when you when they don't have uh, sufficient clinical resources to deliver behavioral therapy to their dependent, you have to give them technology and tools to be able to uh, to supplement that. And the same thing in within uh, you know the payer space as well. How do you allow health plans to be more effective in the way they approve intervention plans? They assess provider performance at scale. You need technology to do that. And I think look, we live in a society today where uh, technology adoption is widespread. You know, we're all on our smartphones. Um, you take a platform like ours, for example, a, a parent on their commute home from work, they can be looking uh, at our platform, watching uh, videos to see, okay, how do I address this problem behavior that my child has been experiencing? Because it's another week until the next therapy appointment or even a, uh, an educator in the classroom, they're teaching a class but uh, they want to work then or assign a paraprofessional work one-on-one -on -one with a student with a special need, that paraprofessional can also deploy their, uh, their uh, smartphone to see, okay, this is how I work with uh, this student. And as I'm working with uh, him or her, I can, uh, with a few taps on my screen, I can assess, is that uh, student uh, uh, progressing? I can capture data. And so you, know, you have the hardware, you have the uh, willingness to use technology. Certainly, our, our whole society seems to be on their phone these days. And that makes it easier also to deploy these technology-based uh, solutions, you know, because we're all technology users daily. Yeah. And I think it's to your to the point that you're also making there is that it's, you know, technology is so ubiquitous that if you make it fit within what you're trying to do and easy to use, you've removed a, a number of the arguable barriers to adoption because it's, you know, making a a similar experience to what you're seeing in your daily life when you're using technology in other instances. Now you, Matt, I appreciate you're saying that because you hit the nail on the head. You know, it's no longer the old days where you had the software on, this will date me, on CD-ROMs, you had to download it onto uh, uh, your hard drive and then start using it. No, everything's in the cloud. And being a cloud-based cloud -based platform, super, super easy. You know, you turn on your laptop or your iPad or your smartphone, and you immediately have access to clinical best practice intervention. So if you're if you're a teacher or if you're a uh, a parent or if you're even a junior clinician, uh, at your fingertips you have these tools that are uh, clinical best practice, and that allows you 
to be able to uh, deliver, you know, at varying levels, uh, instruction, intervention to uh, to the individual you're you're caring for. Uh, if it's easy for you to do that, you're going to use it. Yeah, no, and I appreciate you not going that far back just in CD. <laughs> I definitely remember using floppy disks. And I was just going to say I was not going to go to the I'm 51. I was not going to go to the floppy drive uh, route. So <laughs> that's a good one. It's so kind of using that as a springboard. You know, where do you see the need? for continued evolution or where do you see the technology growing to to kind of address the uh, the the needs that are down the road that um you know maybe haven't hit yet but you're trying to anticipate so that way you're ready to re you've already reacted and you've become set to go when someone says oh what about this issue and you're like well i already thought about that because i saw it coming a year ago you know the, I, I love those kinds of questions um the beauty of what we're doing, uh, we're building a platform that's meant to uh, to support multiple populations, and, and certainly the AI-driven uh, predictability and to map out treatment outcomes that has relevance and will have relevance to multiple data sets. Uh, we're beginning with patients with an autism diagnosis, but you know, behavioral health is broad. Whether it's uh, mental health issues, whether it's uh, addiction issues. Uh, I think historically, uh, if you want to take a, a value-based approach to care, to care um, you need data. And so the kind of engine that we've built that allows for multiple data sets to be uh, you know, fed through it and perform those, uh, those analyses, be able to project outcomes, that's how we're looking to the future. Now, you start small. And then you expand and uh, and go bigger. And so we know that uh, autism is just one subpopulation within you know, the broader behavioral health umbrella. And we want to bring a data-driven approach to multiple populations within behavioral health because ultimately that's how we have an impact. That's how we best serve uh, this, these populations and their caregivers. Yeah, and kind of taking that data-driven approach, you know. Ideally, what what would you like to see, and what do you think would benefit kind of the industry from that perspective of using data to help create a better structure that's going to foster um, the opportunity to to improve outcomes for everyone? You know, I, I think the you know we'll, we'll use another uh, uh, analogy to uh, to date us. If you build it, they will come. The field of dreams. Uh, um, if you offer a data-driven approach to the healthcare system, I think what you find is uh, is adoption. And so, you know, the, the barrier to date has always been the lack of data. So I think we think we worry less about willingness to adopt and more, do you have the data to prove uh, your thesis, to show that this is the right approach? And then the healthcare system uh, will follow. And it's, you know, it's borne itself out in multiple disease areas. This is not new. And but what is new is capturing the data set, analyzing it in the right way, um, using AI to speed that analysis. And I think you know, we all get caught up into uh, you know the chat GPTs of the world. There's so much work being doing been, that's being done on the healthcare side with specific subsets of data where artificial intelligence is uh, is needed to be able to effectively do the analysis uh, and get to the outcomes you want to. 
And I think that's a great point. And I think it's also a great wrapping up point because believe it or not, we are already out of time. Wow. <laughs> I want to thank my guest, Daniel Etra, for a great conversation today. Matt, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on your program. And thank you to everyone listening. Keep the dialogue going and connect with me at hashtag H-C-D-E-J-U-R-E. I'm Matt Fisher. Until next time.